0: Hello. Welcome to the World Affairs Podcast. This is uh, Jeffrey Gordon on the New Books Network. And today we're talking about Hotels and Highways, the Construction of Modernization Theory in Cold War Turkey with the author Begum Medalit of Cornell University. Um, uh, this book is about the... the uh, relationship between social U- U.S. social scientists and U.S. foreign policy in the 1950s. It's about why uh, Turkey has had a special place in the image of U.S. comparative politics, scholars, and uh, development theorists. Um, and it's a book about how Um, certain countries are both, uh, laboratories as well as models for thinking about development and about the tensions involved in the production of knowledge about international development. Um, so, uh, what, uh, what does modernization theory mean for you in this project? Um, and how would you define modernization theory?
1: Right. Uh Um. that's, a, that's a, a, a good question to, to begin with. Um, modernization theory, I think, sort of generically, when we think about it, uh, we know that it was a theory that was quite popular, um, not only in uh, social scientific circles, but also U.S. policy circles in the 1950s and 60s. And it was um, mostly in, interested in explaining um, economic and, and political development in the global periphery. Um, practitioners often insisted on a contrast between tradition and and modernity, and oftentimes assumed a singular uh, and evolutionary path towards development uh, with certain uh, important turning points like the rise of mass media, urbanization, increasing rates of literacy, uh, and and as well as uh, democratization in some uh, forms, versions, and that that these things would, would come in a bundle. Um, But while modernization theorists were um, interested in explaining uh, economic growth and political change in in broad terms, uh, they were also trying to uh, explain cultural, social, and and psychological transformations at the level of subjects. And so they would emphasize um, uh, the, the need to the necessity to measure and explain uh, psyches and mindsets, uh, certain attitudes and, and behaviors that could be uh, seen as models. So in the book, um, I'm, I'm especially interested in the uh, types of um, attitudes and subjectivities uh, such as empathy, mobility and hospitality uh, that were uh, seen as, essential to, as central essential features of a, of a modern subjectivity. and and the ways in which these were um, to be cultivated and enacted in a series of sort of uh, material sites. And that's
0: that's how... Sorry. And and, um, the projects that you talk about and and the social scientific um, methods that you discuss are um, ways of of inculcating these modern forms of subjectivity, these modern ways of being um, in... Uh, Turkish people um, during the 1950s and 1960s. Um, why was Turkey a prototypical case, as well as um, uh, an important laboratory for uh, modernization theory during this period? Um, why did Turkey occupy such an important place in the position of modernization theorists?
1: That, that's a that's a great great question. Um, Uh, In some ways, of course, um, we know that um, uh, a theory like modernization theory, that that it was in in many ways developed and and enacted in in, uh, certain institutions in the US. So we know that MIT's Center for International Studies uh, was an important site. Uh, the SSRC's uh, Committee on Comparative Politics, uh, historians of modernization uh, theory have have written about these sites. But uh, taking my cue from uh, recent histories, I began to see that we need to also look at the types of local practices and regional ideologies and transnational encounters um, that were also quite important in in the production and enactment of of theories and projects of, of modernization and development. And Turkey emerged as an an important site of uh, those types, by by no means the only one, but nevertheless an important site of uh, theorizing and and experimentation for American researchers uh, for a few reasons. One was that um, this was a time when modernization theorists were really quite fearful about the effects that... Uh, you know, mass participation might have, uh, especially as they contemplated the uh, potential trajectories for uh, for those in the uh, vastly decolonizing uh, uh, global south. And they were quite suspicious of, of people's ability to, to rule themselves. And uh, Turkey was a place that had a uh, legacy of top-down reforms and uh, elite-led development, Uh, which made it an an important case study and and model. So it was a question of sort of elite management in in development and and democratization, so it was important for that. Uh, But it was also, I would say, um, an interesting model because uh, of its sort of staunch uh, anti-communism, its status as a a reliable member of the Western bloc uh, between 1947 and 1960, and also, as a, at a moment when uh, U.S. foreign aid was becoming linked with the encouragement of, of development, uh, Turkey, as a recipient of really important uh, packages—Truman so Doctrine, Marshall Plan, Point Four Doctrine, uh, uh, the Point Four Program—Aids uh, that it, it also began uh, playing a role as a, as a laboratory of, of development in those senses as well.
0: Right. And um, if you go back and read uh, some of the important works of, of modernization theory from the 50s and 60s, uh, Ataturk is a really important figure or case study uh, uh, that a lot of these different authors use. Um, a book that I know well from my own research on, on so-called guardian democracies, uh, Samuel Huntington's Political Order and Changing Societies, um, in his uh, chapter on the role of the military in modernizing societies. He has an entire section that just um, repeats, you know, Ataturkist or, or Kamalist um, ideology pretty much word for word and in, in, in praising him as a model of of what. Top-down military-led reform could do for developing societies, and uh, Daniel Lerner, who you talk about, is another person who has uh, uh, important articles from that time period about the the role that the Turkish military played as a um, as a vanguard of modernization in in their society. And so, Turkey has this history of elite-led reform, and also this geographic position where um, it's on the southern flank of the Soviet. Union. Union. It's uh, it during the 1950s. It becomes a, med- a member of NATO and a recipient of Marshall Plan aid because of its geographic uh, proximity to Europe and uh, and as well as because of this uh, cultural project of self-Europeanization that um, uh, Republican elites had had uh, been implementing since at least the 1920s. Um, uh, Turkey becomes this really important. Model And and this mindset, this approach to understanding Turkey is still very much in place today of of viewed as uh, a secular oasis and an otherwise, you know, backward and scary Middle Eastern region from the perspective of Westerners. I get that a lot when I when I talk to students, for example, Uh, that's kind of what they learn from the media's portrayal of Turkey's position in the Middle East. Um, uh, As you point out later on with the, the Turkish model more recently up until maybe the Gezi park protests in 2013, how it was considered a model for, for the rest of the region. Um, so, uh, so you've uh, referred to how um, your approach to a, uh, uh, studying modernization theory is different from some of the approaches of historians like Nils Gilman or, or David Eckblad. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more about how your approach is, is different uh, and contributes to the historiography of modernization theory and, and, and ideologies of development uh, that have emerged in recent years?
1: Um, uh, I think uh, sort of, you know, really very uh, valuable and important work has been done, especially by uh, intellectual historians in, in uh, telling the story about the emergence of modernization theory, um, recovering the history of the particular types of uh, academic and, and government institutions that were, that were central to its, its crafting and its uh, um, propagation across the, the world. Uh, but uh, you know uh, more, more recent work here I can uh, I can cite uh, Nathan Cetino's really important work on um, envisioning the Arab future um, that uh, you know really situates uh, developmental theories and projects in their in their uh, sort of local contexts uh, the, the important ways in which again uh, sort of regional regional conflicts but also regional uh, ideas, and and really, ultimately, transnational encounters between um, uh, American and Turkish social scientists, um, uh, American or or other and, and other uh, local experts and policymakers played. I think this, that's sort of the uh, uh, the more recent latter uh, sort of uh, literatures that that I was um, taking my my cue from and, and trying to be in, in conversation with.
0: Yeah. Um, uh... I feel like if I would have known that the history of international development was a thing, maybe I would have gone into a history program because I find this all very interesting, uh, interesting work. And I'm really interested in these ideologies of uh, that, uh, the ideological lens through which U.S. policymakers and social scientists approach studying the rest of the world. Um, I think that... uh, um, your approach is uh, the approach that you're taking here of, of involving um, local actors and the interactions between local actors and, 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 and um, American uh, actors in the shaping of modernization theory and modernization projects is a, a really important contribution of this book. Uh, and you use the word uh, laboratorization uh, a lot to um, describe this. Uh, um, way that u.s policymakers uh thought of turkey as not only uh, a model for other countries particularly in the middle east to emulate but also as um an object of 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 transformation and of reform um what do you mean by laboratorization
1: um there uh, i'm I'm really sort of taking my cue from uh, scholars of um, science and technology studies and uh, SDS inspired uh, histories of the, of the social scientific practices uh, as well. And one, one thing that was that, that led me to sort of adopt that, that language was precisely the fact that um, because many of them uh, were, uh, had also affinities for uh, broadly sort of behavioralist uh, uh, approaches to the study of modernization, uh, the practitioners themselves used a, a language uh, that, was, that was quite uh, scientifically in, in inflected and a language of experimentation, a language of uh, sort of crafting uh, general, all, uh, all explaining, all explanatory uh, theorems and, and models. Uh, and so um, following those threads, then uh, what was really striking was uh, sort of being able to uh, Think about social scientific investigations themselves, social scientific methodologies like survey research, for instance, themselves as as uh, sort of uh, efforts not merely to uh, measure uh, or or describe the phenomena under investigation, but uh, actually having an, an effect of of producing or or an, at least an effort to enact uh, certain types of, of political outcomes and, and also certain types of subjectivities and attitudes. And so uh, laboratorization in the, in the sense of uh, um, both Turkey more, more broadly uh, as a site of experimentation for researchers um, interested in coming up with uh, theories and, and models of, of modernity, uh, but also uh, Turkey with, uh, with within itself holding different types of different sites of laboratorization, so uh, survey research, a uh, highway project across the country, hotels themselves, as, as sites that were supposed to sort of encourage, cultivate uh, particular types of, of again, um, particular components of a of a modern subjectivity. So that's that's sort of broadly what I, what I mean by uh, by that language.
0: Right, and um, it's it's uh, that language really stood out to me because um, in my graduate training in political science, I've. Uh, uh, learned a lot about how um, for political science methodologists and for publications in the top journals in in the field um, uh, experiments are still the gold standard of causal inference and the research designs are supposed to um, um, come as close to that ideal as possible and uh, in political science in the last decade or so there's been a big trend towards the use of, of field experiments or laboratory in the field experiments and comparative politics to try to um, study how to improve political accountability and political responsiveness um, uh, through this process that you just a process similar to what you describe of, of not only trying to, um, go out and collect data and measure and describe but also to engender the very phenomena that political scientists supposedly seek to examine being something like democratic accountability in the um, in the very particular way that political scientist empirical political scientists think about democracy and accountability um, I thought that uh, le- le- Laboratorization was a really interesting word to use because I feel like maybe in another couple of decades, somebody could write a similar book about um, the laboratorization of Uganda or Liberia, where which have been countries where um, a lot of... Uh, articles published in American Political Science Review or American Journal of Political Science have done experiments um, around everything from um, the mobilization of ethnic politics to uh, studying clientelism and corruption. Um, I think that that, uh, that... that way of approaching uh the world and the and the unself-consciousness about the role of power relations and knowledge creation uh, are still features of political science today. And and so I think this uh makes your book very relevant to um um contemporary political science methodology. Um, but I want to come back to that uh a little later on. Um Uh, So you talk about one of the figures that you talk about in this book is, is Dankwart Rostow. He was um, a German emigre political scientist uh, who came to serve as uh, what you describe as a dragoman or translator for U S social scientists interested in Turkey. Um, How did he come to uh, uh, occupy this position as a, uh, a mediator between U S social science and, and, and Turkey and Turkish uh, social scientists?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think the answer would, would probably have to rest in part on, on just the trajectory of his, of his biography, his, his life story. Um, Rasta was, was born in Germany, but moved to Istanbul uh, when he was 14 uh, to follow his, his father, who was an uh, economics professor and who had uh, fled Germany and started teaching at Istanbul University. And so uh, he uh, spent the World War II years in Istanbul, auditing classes, uh, learning, uh, learning Turkish uh, and, and, and other languages. And it was after that that he moved to the U.S. Uh, he got a Ph.D. in political science at Yale and, and eventually started uh, teaching at, at Princeton. And from the beginning of his career, he was uh, very much this, this central and mediating figure who was very... Uh, He was, you know, uh, a central figure in in the SSRC's Committee on Comparative Politics. Uh, He was involved with a number of uh, committees on on Middle East Studies. Uh, He was also a a sort of a figure at the Council on Foreign Relations and all sorts of conversations between um, uh, policymakers and and, uh, social scientists and uh, at times diplomats, oilmen. And so, uh, both from a sort of a academic and a, and a political, really uh, perspective, he was very much um, involved with with uh, a number of conversations where uh, where um, Turkey, because of the reasons that we mentioned earlier, was was very much on the table as a as a as a site of importance for these um, um, you know uh, declared uh, national security reasons. So,
0: right, um, pretty much whenever. Uh something happened in Turkey, uh, newspapers and organizations like the council on foreign relations would turn to Rusto for commentary because he was seen as one of the, the most prominent experts on, on Turkey and, and U S social science, uh, occupying that position at Princeton. Um, and, um, uh, could you describe his his trajectory and his relationship with modernization theory over the course of his career, from the beginnings of of the construction of the institutional framework within which comparative political science research was uh, emerging, uh, with the Council on uh, Comparative Politics uh, in the early nineteen fifties. Um, he was he, from the chapter I gather that he was a pretty enthusiastic participant in these early, um, um, meetings to kind of shape the research agenda for comparative politics in the, the, post-war period. But over time he became, um, somewhat critical of the way that, um, modernization theory was practiced and, and developed and, uh, somewhat disillusioned with, um, um, political science. Uh, could you describe this trajectory?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, that makes him such an interesting and, and exciting figure for me uh, was the ways in which sort of he's very much present from, from the outset uh, in these efforts to uh, create, again, uh, to craft a new, new theory that will be able to uh, explain and, and pose a, a model uh, of, of development uh, for, for countries across the global south. And so, in that position, he's um, uh, he's one of the few, uh, first people that uh, Gabriel Almond, uh, the, the famous political scientist, when he's uh, he takes on the uh, the leadership role in, in SSRC's new uh, initiative uh, to to create this new committee for comparative politics. Uh, Rasta at the time is is doing another research project in Turkey and is is very enthusiastic about this idea of. Uh, coming out with with new methods, new ways of of, of comparison that will uh, then uh, uh, have this ability to uh, 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 compare and contrast uh, political and economic uh, systems in, in different areas of the world. But uh, very quickly, uh, he became quite suspicious of and and, and disillusioned with the with the projects that that they are engaging in. And so um, he's, he's uh, in, in, even as, as early as the uh, mid-1950s, uh, while um, working as a, as a contributor to one of these famous uh, volumes, The Politics of the Developing Areas, uh, co-edited by Gabriel Almond and, and James Coleman, uh, he, he sends uh, a private letter to, to Coleman, one of the editors, telling him, that although he was assigned to write this chapter on, uh, on political development across the, the Middle East, he's actually uh, ignorant about certain uh, details. He doesn't know about the situation of newspapers in Yemen. Uh, he He's not comfortable creating a, a matrix for, for types of political systems. Everything is a bit uncertain. Uh, he doesn't necessarily uh, want to use even, even uh, the... In in some communications, correspondences, he raises questions about the very phrases of development versus underdevelopment. He thinks there are certain patronizing qualities to to these languages. And what was really um, uh, interesting about what this this private correspondence um, um, revealed was that he wasn't even alone in in these types of skepticisms and and uncertainties, so... Um, you know, others, others engaged in the project thought uh, that uh, the uh, authors hadn't worked together long enough, uh, that that there was something to the point where uh, comparison is a is a dubious uh, uh, project, and so he's he's really sort of uh, and and his his criticism at first uh, sort of formulated in these more private uh, enclosed settings. Uh, by the end of the 1960s, he becomes he joins uh, many others who who are you know altogether disillusioned with the modernization project, modernization theory project, and are much more vocal about about their criticisms of it. But just kind of uh, being able to um, sketch this this trajectory of his uh, of his intellectual development, uh, and also noticing that. Uh, while while in private he was uh, he could be quite uh, sort of uh, doubtful of, of, of certain trends, he nonetheless was continued to be uh, a central figure to the development of both modernization theory and this, and this trope of, of a Turkish model. right So uh, even though he could be skeptical, uh, he still upheld all sorts of uh, pathological features of, of this Turkish model of modernization. Uh, he ended up, uh, you know, making uh, excuses for all sorts of military coups that would happen every every ten years in Turkey. Uh, he um, continued uh, publishing volumes that that insisted on on the separation between ostensibly modern Turks and and quote unquote backwards Arabs. So, uh, you know, um, it's really really sort of fascinating to to look at him as as someone who who. Is is increasingly increasingly doubtful of the project he's involved in, but but is at the same time uh, really contributing uh, important important facets to that
0: work. I think that that's a really interesting um, um, uh, aspect of 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 the portrait that you paint of him, this difference between the private skepticism and the public, uh, participation in, uh, some of the very same features that he was, uh, at least somewhat critical of, um, um, behind the scenes. Uh, what do you think explains this, uh, difference between, um, the private skepticism and the public participation, uh, in some of these, uh, developments?
1: Um. I think uh, there could be uh, several several uh, reasons for that, but I mean, one of the one of the sort of pictures that we glean from a, again a more more recent intellectual histories of the of the ways in which social sciences were were practiced during this period, uh, Mark Solovey's work, for instance, which is mostly about these uh, uh, networks of patronage and, and funding. And the ways in which the social scientists uh, during this period felt, did feel a pressure to uh, present their work as, as objective uh, and which I think entailed uh, a necessity to sort of uh, sort of conceal or disavow some of the private uh, skepticisms uh, uh, that they might have about uh, the, the limitations of their work, about the limitations of their own knowledge, and uh, this, this pressure to to present their work as, as as being objective came came from this need to uh, secure uh, funding from uh, from foundations, uh, from the government. Uh, and so um, I think you know, not, not to be too too cynical about it, but there is there is something to be said, I think, for um, uh, continuing to um, project more confidence and, and, and uh, certitude about about the work that they were doing. Uh, that might partly have been uh, a result of of uh, being uh, merged in these in these um, uh, networks of of political influence and, and funding and, and other reasons. That
0: makes sense. Right, these very strong uh, career incentives and. Um, you know, it, you don't have. He doesn't have to be a cynic to follow these sorts of incentives. Even if he wants to, uh, even if somebody like Resto or or a contemporary uh, uh, social scientist who is clear-eyed about the limitations of their methodologies and theories, but nonetheless wants to do some kind of good in the world and wants to at least kind of um, nudge the. Policy, the foreign policy, in in a positive direction, they can still play along with this pathological set of rules that um, encourages people to uh, overstate their the the novelty and importance of their findings and to uh, downplay some of the limitations of their of their methods and theories and to. contribute to this uh, um, overconfidence, systematic overconfidence in, um, in the uh, ability of U S foreign policy to bring about the sorts of objectives it wants to achieve in the world. Um, uh, I think that that's uh, a really good point. And, and these structural factors are, I I think still in place today uh, the need to, uh, inflate your findings in order to get funding or get promotions and and to have influence uh is something is is a very real um pressure for political scientists. Um uh f- shifting our focus now to uh your your chapter on survey research and uh on the sociologist Daniel Lerner um uh, how is Daniel Lerner's uh, understanding of modernization and understanding of social science different from Dinkwart rustows Who was Daniel Lerner, first of all?
1: Uh, so, uh, so Lerner, Lerner was a was a sociologist, um, but uh, really, uh, even more so than than, than Rustow, I think his really primarily his work was in in uh, psychological warfare studies, and so. Uh, very much shaped by uh, by this uh, by some of the sort of the Cold War uh, commitments, uh, these these um, ideas about uh, again what's, what is required, what are the what are the uh, needs for uh, the national security state, and uh, most importantly, he is the author of uh, the passing of traditional society. Uh, which uh, focuses less on, on questions of, of broader sort of political development uh, at the level of uh, institutions and whatnot that, that I was writing about. And Lerner is really interested in uh, sort of um, the, the, the ways in which, uh, again, uh, modern uh, behaviors are, 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 are to be um, enacted at the level of, of individuals. And uh, the passing of traditional society itself is is interesting. It's it's commissioned by the Voice of America, uh, which is interested in in uh, gauging the effect that Soviet jamming uh, might have on their on their radio signals. So it's a very explicitly sort of I- ideological work. And um, inter- is it, it's interesting also because um, of of uh, sort of learners. Uh, seeming awareness and, and investment in survey methodology itself as as something that is able to occasion the the enactment of of, of modernity, and he's he's fa- very famously sort of interested in this concept of, of empathy, which he sometimes calls uh, psychic mobility. As something that is the the product of uh, the use of of uh, technologies, media technologies. Uh, but he's also uh, he also seems to think that uh, just the ability the very ability to to respond to the surveys that are brought by these American social scientists uh, is is another way of sort of uh, measuring the capacity for for empathy on the part of these these modernizing subjects. So if a respondent is, able to have opinions and formulate them in a way that is legible to the interviewer uh, if they' they're open uh, to, 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 to taking these surveys these are all uh, uh, things that are that get coded as, as markers of, of empathy and modern modern subjectivity for him. But when you look at sort of the, the actual uh, qualitative responses uh, that are that are available uh, at the MIT, MIT archives actually you, you see a uh, much, much different different picture in terms of uh, respondents, um, sure. sort of different reasons that they might give for not wanting to engage with the questionnaire, for being suspicious of the interviewer, and and, and whatnot. So, uh, he he that book I think uh, is presents this sort of very interesting um, uh, uh, opportunity for for reflecting on the types of uh, again uh, methodological uh, assumptions and tools that were. That, and employed by these different types of modernization fields
0: right uh you say that social scientific theories and attendant methodologies not only measure encode or describe but also engender the phenomena they seek to explain Mm -hmm. Uh, and you talk about um, that uh, um, learner was hoping to uh, not only describe but engender this uh, idea of empathy here um, what are some of the examples of ways that um, he was hoping to use this survey to engender um, uh, empathy or, mm-hmm. or uh, psychological mobility
1: yeah I mean the, the types of questions that were that were posed um, uh, would would range from uh, you know can you imagine yourself as the president of Turkey? Can you imagine yourself moving to a big city? Can you imagine yourself moving to the US? Uh, and so a series of exercises in, in uh, what he's he's thinking of in terms of, of psychic ability, a series of exercises in uh, trying to imagine yourself in these uh, uh, foreign uh, situations. Uh, and uh, he seems to have a hope that just by by virtue of posing the questions, uh, uh, and uh, one, one effect will be to, to create this ability to uh, um, in fact envision yourself in these improbable uh, scenarios and, and situations and at the same time I think that it is important to note that um, you know again these these um, sets of assumptions about uh, about difference and, and and how he interprets the the data itself uh Actually, gives a, a gives a more complicated uh, picture of, of sort of what he's trying to do, in the sense that um, when respondents um, re- reply with resistance to these um, uh, types of questions that are supposed to um, measure empathy and your ability to imagine yourself in these situations, uh, the way he interprets the the data uh, also has a really sort of. Uh, different implications in terms of uh, the the nations and the and the cultures that he's he's writing about. So in another survey, he sees that the, the French also in fact do not <laughs> like these types of questions and are hesitant to answer some of these uh, engage with with some of these surveys. Um, but you know he he learner is very quick to make the qualification that oh the French for their reticence their traditionalism is, a, is an acquired intellectual discipline. Uh, whereas the the peasant in the Middle East is is traditional because no other option comes to him naturally and just is just limited in the, in terms of their uh, ability to um, to imagine things. So he's he's really a quite racialized, really, and uh, learners quite racialized in, in how he's interpreting uh, and and labeling these these types of um, psychic differences as, as he understands them.
0: Right. Uh, we see in that example. Uh... Uh, a pretty good um, uh, case of using this construction of the irrational other to uh, stabilize uh, his own identity as a rational Westerner who um, has this knowledge to impart on uh, the sub the subjects and in many ways the objects of his interventions um, uh, by. Uh, twisting and, and reinterpreting um, uh, these findings that f- French peasants and Turkish peasants aren't all that different, it turns out uh, and trying to spin it to maintain this kind of developed and underdeveloped um, categorical schema that, that, um, um, that organizes his worldview uh, in many ways. And, um, uh, Turning now to your um, discussion of highway construction and your chapters on the role of experts in the construction of uh, reports and decision making about um, how to build highways and also uh, how um, local actors can use highway can use these development projects to serve very different political projects and what um, what American administrators might intend. you say that uh, the arrival of American aid, experts, and machinery to construct highways was expected to instigate modernization in administrative and mecha- mechanical terms by acquainting the new Turkish highway organization and its civil engineers with rational management methods. Um, what were some of the sources of friction that emerged between Marshall Plan administrators, the U.S. Bureau of Public Roads experts, and Turkish engineers? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so so um, there, there are two, two chapters in the book about, about the uh, construction of highways with uh, US aid and, uh, and, and expertise and, and this is because um, the, the aid that was given to, to the highway project really made up about a third of, of all the aid to Turkey during this the, the, between 1948 and 1959. So it was really bloomed quite large in, uh, in this um, uh, relationship between the two places. And uh, when, when looking closely at the uh, at the highway project, I mean, it's not just a question of um, paving new roads, and, but the fact the fact is that uh, infrastructures also travel with uh, new types of uh, technological technological standards, new types of legal regulations, uh, bureaucratic organization, and the um, uh, on, the, on the U.S. side, I think uh, you have this, uh, in terms of the uh, Bureau of uh, Roads, uh, you have the American uh, highway experts, the engineers, uh, really primarily interested in, in altering the country's sort of material and, and bureaucratic landscape in uh, inculcating certain, uh, certain approaches to rational methods of record-keeping. Uh, they're very interested in um, cultivating ideas about uh, time management and, and uh, the maintenance of, of machinery. Uh, there's this image among the uh, American engineers that that uh, the Turkish engineers refuse to quote unquote get their hands dirty. Uh, that they have a, a hangover from both their pr- previous uh, German uh, um, uh, um, education which makes them averse to leaving their, their desks. Uh, but they, they also describe this at times as a, as a passion mentality. So they're, they're really interested in sort of, uh, um, an, an administrative organization reorganization, uh, that's, that's going to remake, uh, sort of, uh, uh the, the bureaucratic, uh, so the landscape and understandings of approaches to engineering and expertise. Uh, but, uh, the, obviously, because the majority of the funding for the project is is coming, especially uh, in the early period, from uh, Marshall Plan funds, uh, the, uh, the ECA, which is the Economic uh, Cooperation Administration, responsible for uh, allocating those those funds, uh, has different priorities in mind. Um, I was really struck at one point in in, in one uh, correspondence. Uh, they they tell the American engineers that the Turkish economy is their business, their own business. Uh, it's up to the Marshall Plan people to to take care of it, and so they should have the last say in terms of uh, how how and where the machinery will be uh, uh, distributed, how and where uh, the roads would be built. Uh, they wanted to bring in uh, American contractors, private contractors, um, whereas the engineers were, were quite resisting resistant to that idea. So. Uh, And and from the Turkish perspective, um, you have also, of course, an interest in the highway project, uh, both in terms of uh, sort of something that will create a a unified uh, internal market, but also as a state territorial project, given uh, all sorts of concerns about an internal uh, colonial project that's ongoing in in, uh, Kurdish populated areas in the country as well. And so uh, I, I began to think of uh, this highway project as really something that um, brings together uh, these these conflicting at times ideas about uh, political, economic, and, and material uh, priorities and, 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 and expectations, a lot of which also has to do with uh, the measurement and direction of Turkey's post-war economy. It has to do with the nationalist project. It had to also do with approaches to development and modernization at these at these different scales including um, how how an engineer is is supposed to be conducting themselves that makes
0: sense right um and uh, I, I do want to turn to these broader uh, political projects that highways are supposed to serve in a moment. But I was, I was really interested um, how you cite uh, critical development theorists like James Ferguson and Timothy Mitchell and Tanya Murray Lee, who uh, have all written these really interesting books um, about how experts... Um, Present their work as technical solutions, and in doing so, conceal the political implications of their interventions. They depoliticize development, as James Ferguson put it. Um, in your case of interactions between US experts and their Turkish counterparts, um, how did the personal and, as you put it, corporeal interactions contribute to the fashioning of expert knowledge and practices? And would you say that this was an example of, of depoliticizing development? How how does your work uh, relate to that literature?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question. I mean, um, one of the additional things that was that was quite striking in, in reading through the accounts uh, and, the, and the correspondences between um, the technical uh, experts was also seeing um, sort of. How, how attuned in a way they were to to uh, questions of, of recognition, questions of intimacy, and, and using quite a uh, personal personal language and personal terms as well. So uh, because uh, multiple agencies wanted to take take credit for the uh, highway project uh, in in Turkey, there was this um, uh, you know um, that there was this almost a, a, a competition in terms of sort of well who who are the who are the people that the villagers recognize by name uh when when they come to their uh, uh, this uh, sites to uh, create these projects and so uh, rather than this sort of detached very technical um, uh interactions that that also uh, Try to very much to to conceal their their political investments. What you had was this claim that you know uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's, the, it's the engineers themselves who who are recognized by name, who are recognized by face, uh, who are covered in newspapers, who are uh, celebrated in, in villages. So um, so that was really uh, kind of a, a, a really interesting uh, vision of expertise that I hadn't uh, really. Um, encountered in in, in uh, other other critical accounts of development, so it's not to say necessarily that. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that there, there, this this um, takes away this this um, contrasts with these this account of uh, technical development as as always necessarily a uh, depoliticized thing, but there is something about the uh, coexistence of the of the investment and in the intimate and the personal and the social alongside these um, more detached technical standards for um for expertise. So.
0: Right, and I think that um the subjects that you're talking about are are somewhat different from the subjects that um Uh, Ferguson or Mitchell or or Lee are talking about when I think about technical experts uh, depoliticizing development, I imagine uh, World Bank experts who, you know, parachute into a country in crisis and tell them how to reorganize their economy and then you know pop back out after doing a powerpoint presentation in which they may or may not have the correct country on the slides i've heard about examples of 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 that uh that happening um but your uh your study is very much about um sets of experts who are much more embedded in their in their local circumstances than, than these sort of uh parachuters are uh and i think that that gives a a different um a different lens to understanding um, the role of expert knowledge in the politics of development. Um, So turning now to these macro level political projects that Highways uh, uh, contribute to, one of the biggest sources of elite conflict in po- post-war Turkish politics was over land reform. And it was, um, by, you know, some, some accounts would, uh, suggest that, um, a, a land reform bill is kind of the last straw that led to the split between, um, more, uh, market oriented, um, business friendly politicians, uh, from the Republican, the incumbent Republican people's party, uh, and those people, would those elites would later form the Democrat Party, led by the large landowner, Adnan Medeiros, who for obvious reasons was against land reform. You you write that um, highway construction uh, displaced plans for land reform as the primary vision for development. Uh, how, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think you know there I'm, I'm very cognizant and, and trying to engage with um literature that that uh, shows just just how important um, different approaches to agricultural and rural development really were uh, to uh, to this broader uh to these broader co- uh, co- constructions and projects around uh, cold War modernization. And so um I think in in many ways, you know, I think that the classic uh, picture that we get, in the immediate post-war period, especially, is is that of uh, U.S. experts, um, but also you know uh, uh, military experts as well as uh, developmental technical experts, really being invested in in propagating the idea of of, of, of land reforms. So we we know of you uh, the U.S. and Japan, uh, and and other places. Um, so um, what what happens in Turkey, interestingly, is that uh, actually. Uh, the land reform project, rather than getting implemented, is in a way displaced by uh, the highway project, which ends up standing for a, for an alternative vision of, of rural uh, development. And um, this is not to uh, also romanticize the uh, land reform proposal from, from 1945, uh, which has its, its own, own sort of uh, limitations and, and all sorts of uh, problematic implications. Uh, but uh, there is uh, as, you, as you're saying um, the sort of the defeat of that bill uh, is is an important turning point in the in the consolidation of, of, of the shift to, to an uh, agricultural model of, of capitalism uh, and um, is also really important in the coming to power of, of a new party for the first time in the history of the republic uh, party of, of large large landowners uh, whose um, Whose use of the Marshall Plan funds for uh, building these roads, uh, distributing uh, agricultural machinery and, and tractors to often a, a large landowning population, really uh, uh, recreates the um, sort of the uh, uh, rural developmental landscape for the country for, for many years to come.
0: Right. And um, you talk about uh, also, you mentioned earlier in our conversation and, and in this chapter of the book, you talk about um, the internal colonization of the southeast of Turkey, the Kurdish uh, territories. What role did highway construction play in this project of internal colonization?
1: Uh, there, uh, I think, um, you know, what's what's important to note is uh, rather than um, emerging as a as a completely novel um, sort of uh, intervention into this this ongoing uh, colonial project, highways I think of as a, as as yet another, another component and a, sort of a long-standing uh, spatial approach that the that the Central Turkish government uh, has towards uh, this this problem of what what it sees as a problem of of, uh, of its its Kurdish uh, populations and previous spatial approaches include things like forced migration and resettlement, uh, the construction of of railways, which uh, Zeynep Kezar in her work uh, does a really wonderful job talking about and the the role that railways played in in guerrilla warfare, moving troops, pacification, uh, territorial colonization. Uh, so uh, I think in a way, uh, highways are, are building on, on, on some of those, those earlier projects. And uh, I mean, I think one of the ways in which um, they're, they're doing this is, is precisely by um, materializing state presence in, in people's lives. Uh, it was striking for me the ways in which uh, highways connected people and, and created mobility for some people while uh, limiting it for others. And so uh, in the East, um, rural roads roads would not be built. Um, so there was an incentive to actually keep uh, villages uh, apart from, from each other. But there was an uh, effort to actually connect the villages to, to, to uh, city centers. So that seems like an explicit um, uh, and very conscious kind of uh, differential approach in terms of um, uh, creating connections between some and not among others. And it was also interesting to see the ways in which uh, the highway engineers themselves seem to have internalized some of these, these um, uh, projects and, and commitments themselves. So an imagery of conquest in the highway bulletin uh, was, was something that got repeated a lot. Uh, the, the engineers' own, own motto for their organization was, uh, it's not yours if you can't get there. So, um, sort of uh, a repetition of this idea that uh, reaching, penetrating, integrating into these otherwise impenetrable uh, um, uh, um, frontier region was an important uh, element of the, of the of the sort of the territorial uh, infrastructural project that, that they were part in.
0: Right. Um, uh... This discussion brings to mind the phrase uh, uh, Michael Mann's famous description of of state power, infrastructural power, right? This is a very literal manifestation of that concept, isn't it, Um, uh, of how... Um, the highways stood for the projection of central state power into, as you described, these frontier regions that, uh, for a long time, not only Turkish, but previously Ottoman administrators had considered kind of a lawless region with, uh, lots of brigandage and, and, um, um, and so highways were, uh, uh one means of bringing order to, to this region. And, uh, also I, th- it made me think about, um, um, the role that uh, the loss of Ottoman territories played in the mentalities of Turkish state builders and how they they were very, very concerned uh, with uh, uh, the territorialization of state power and um, not allowing uh, um, these regions to have autonomy, which they could uh, then use to, um, undermine the sovereignty of the state as a whole, at least in their minds. Um, uh, I also, uh, in, in um, reading this chapter, I was uh, thinking about how, um, how highways were supposed to forge national unity, and the phrase that came to mind was the imagined community, right? How are highways supposed to contribute to the imagining of a turkish nation in the eyes of of um some of the planners
1: um yeah i mean i think even even sort of the the language of uh, all all weather roads right this was a phrase that, that kept propping in the in the um, uh in the materials i was finding from at the, at the department of highways in turkey and i guess the idea was to really connect the, the country for, for twelve months of the year rather than five as as right. might been the case right under under especially sort of wintry conditions in, uh, and, in those um uh, so-called frontier regions, and so uh, there is there is something about I think uh, making um uh, possible the ease of travel and uh, this expectation in a way that uh you know what the learner was was interested in, in cultivating in terms of a psychic mobility for uh, imagining an ability to move to another country imagining yourself as, as capable of social mobility uh in this case i guess uh, the idea is is to uh, is, is precisely that that language of uh, imagining uh, a, a community uh uh, a shared, uh sort of uh, a shared conception of, of um um of readership, uh, listening to uh, uh, a radio program and imagining yourself as as, as uh, the recipient of uh, as as, the, as a shared member of a, uh, of an audience uh, so all of those examples i think that, that um uh, that that we think of when we when we think of nation making as 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 this as, um, uh, as a project, I think the role that that infrastructures are supposed to play is is to shrink distances between uh, cities. It's to uh, both both physical distances, but also, I think, uh, uh, in the minds of the planners and the statesmen also to shrink the the mental distances that might actually exist between uh, different regions of the country.
0: Right. And um, I think that a hallmark of uh, so-called traditional life for a lot of these modernization theorists was um, local or very parochial allegiances and mentalities and highways were one way of kind of breaking down these local attachments and and, and connecting people to uh, the larger political unit, which um, for modernization theorists, the, na- the nation was kind of the... Um, natural unit of allegiance that people should have. And, and, um, I think that, uh, as I was reading this, that's the kind of, um, um, process that I think they expected to uh, bring about with highway construction. Um, What were some of the unintended consequences of highway construction? How did highways open up the category of the modern to contestation, appropriation, and redefinition, as you put it? I
1: mean, I think the the best example that I can think of that I write about in the book is is, is a direct uh, uh, outcome of of precisely this this effort to actually uh, make make mobility easier to have people move around uh, is is precisely the, the ways in which uh, Azat Zana writes about um, uh, ultimately what ended up happening in uh, uh, in connecting um, Turkish cities to uh, Western cities. Was um, ultimately uh, Kurdish students um, regathering in, in in major cities like in Istanbul, uh, and uh, that that those those new meetings in a, in a different setting actually politicizing them, right? And uh, and I think there's something about uh, culminating actually in in 1967. These these grand uh, things called Eastern meetings uh, um, happened and. In, in the Arbaker. and so the idea is, is that um, rather than this expectation that um, uh, the ease of movement will will allow you to um, get assimilated in a in a major Western city, what ends up happening actually is a. Is a Highlighting of of uh, inequality, highlighting of of, uh, uh, of of political injustices, and in fact uh, rules themselves becoming sort of repurposed and doing these Eastern meetings. Uh, infrastructure itself becomes an element of of uh, claim making, a demand on the central government, uh, but not in the terms that 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 they are they had been previously used, uh, they had been previously mobilized by uh, by the. Uh, developers, but but in this case, to say uh, you know, um, give us roads, but not on your terms, on on ours. So that's that's an interesting unintended consequence,
0: right? And um, uh, that really fits in with um, this idea of, of highways as as a means for um, claim making and um, political contestation. Um, makes me think about. Uh, the infrastructural turn and in other disciplines like anthropology and geography uh where you've seen scholars like um deborah cohen uh in her in her book um um the date the deadly life of uh of of um yeah um where she talks about how uh now m- m- highways and and ports are are places that are becoming more and more securitized precisely because um uh groups that want to highlight or or, or fight against what they view as political injustices can use uh roadblocks or or other ways of impeding um, um logistics and, and infrastructure uh to make claims on the state uh and so um, I think that that uh, uh, is an, interested, uh, an interesting unintended consequence of, of, of these uh, construction projects, that they open up more ways and new ways for, for claims to be made um, on the state. Um, and then uh, I, the last uh, um, case study chapter you have is about the Istanbul Hilton um, and about the, the growth of the, the the effort to construct a hospitality industry in Turkey in the post-war period. Um, what were the different meanings that American and Turkish actors attached to the Istanbul Hilton, and how did these different imaginaries contribute to conflicts over the hotel's style, funding, and location?
1: Yeah, I mean the the uh, Istanbul Hilton is this this iconic building that um, that um, architectural historians have, have especially have, have written about. Um, and uh, in this case, sort of, it, what was striking to me was again these these different types of visions and, and uh, projects uh, coming into uh, conflict with each other on this on this particular site. Uh, from the perspective of the uh, U.S. government, uh, this was an example of a, of a collaboration with a, I think, a private corporation to to enact uh, foreign policy agendas. Uh, there was a sense that. Um, Using um, Marshall Plan funds, for instance, for uh, tourism promotion, uh, was an was an easier sell than, than direct foreign aid, and in this case, teaming up with a with a corporation like the the Hilton International uh, was was uh, desirable for those uh, for those uh, goals. Uh, from the perspective of the uh, the Turkish government, uh, it was, I think, an an interest in sort of enticing uh, foreign. Foreign investment, private uh, uh, private enterprise, and also um, developing the, the tourism industry, where, where uh, it had been, it was deemed to be sort of in, in need of of, of uh, actual um, uh, development. So, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, when you when I started reading uh, more closely about the conditions under which uh, the hotel was ultimately built. Uh, the the site of it had to be expropriated uh, from a, from what was supposed to be a public park, uh, which itself had actually uh, rested on a prior expropriation with the, of a uh, of an Armenian cemetery that had been uh, uh, nearby, uh, and so uh, it was interesting to see uh, the ways in which sort of this 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 particular collaboration between the U.S. government, the Turkish government, and this, this private corporation was actually also really deeply entangled with, with uh, domestic histories of, of dispossession also.
0: Right. And um, I think that uh, to this day in, in um, political science and then mainstream development studies, um, economic modernization, uh, uh just ignores this uh, role that dispossession plays in the, in the politics of, of, of space uh, involved in, in modernization projects um, uh, and what kinds of resistance that that can elicit. That, that This resistance is often deemed uh, traditional or pre-modern when in fact it's uh, um, pushing back against what people see as Um, an unjust usurpation by the state. And in this case, um, uh, uh, Turkish and American actors, uh, uh, public and private, came together to privatize this public space um, that itself was uh, uh, dispossessed in the course of trying to homogenize the Turkish population and and uh, erase the multiple... Cultures that had lived side by side in Istanbul during the Ottoman period. Um, uh, I thought that that's a really interesting uh, um, example of this uh, overlooked politics of space, um, uh, and especially in light of Gezi Park, it's it's also interesting because the Gezi Park protests were were spurred by uh, um, maybe a somewhat similar. Um, attempt to build a shopping mall in a, in a public park, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was a, a, a really fascinating book. And, and in uh, the conclusion, um, I want to uh, ask you, um, so some political scientists might regard this kind of examination of the disciplinary history as unhelpful navel gazing that distracts from actually going out into the world and producing research. Why should political scientists take an an interest in the history of their discipline? You say that uh, we shouldn't just leave this to the the intellectual historians to write about this stuff. Um, What can histories like your book uh, tell us about our discipline and and how should it make us rethink what we're doing uh, as political scientists?
1: Thank you. That's a, a, a great great question. Um, I think um, uh, the I, I you know earlier uh, we had talked a little bit about sort of um, the, the ways in which. Uh, we can name, we can look at certain other disciplines like anthropology or, or, or history, uh, which, which have done better jobs, I think, in a way, in terms of sort of um, cultivating maybe a, a more self reflexive, critical attitude towards their, their own histories. And um, this is not entirely lacking, I don't think, in, in political science. Just in the past couple of years, books by uh, Jessica Blatt, Robert Vitalis, Michael Henshardt, uh, have have come out uh, interrogating uh, um, uh, all sorts of uh, aspects of um, uh, the subfields of IR, uh, comparative politics, American politics, uh, more broadly, and especially the the history of the of the discipline in terms of its entanglements with with all sorts of uh, racist and white supremacist projects as well. And so um, I think it's it's. Important to do this work, and I'm, I'm happy that that uh, a lot of people are doing this work. Uh, and in the case of the more specific history of the discipline that I look at, uh, which is the history of, of modernization theory, uh, I think um, it can be helpful because although we do tend to uh, dismiss it as a as an outdated. Um, Idea, you know, of course, in our in our uh, field seminars, you know, we kind of gloss over this and we say, yes, of course, it was ethnocentric, it was, it generalized too much, and uh, you know, um, uh, it was it was normative, it upheld these these Western institutions as ideal types and had all sorts of assumptions, but it does seem to me that certain certain uh, certain presuppositions of this, this theory actually do continue to direct uh, some of our, uh, our, our projects, our research projects. Uh, I think modernization theory is important because um, recovering this history is important precisely because it helps us come to terms with the uh, political implications of, of our research methods and projects. Uh, precisely in the way that that other disciplines have have come to terms with the, the political implications of their
0: own own histories
1: um and even yeah i mean yeah i will stop there
0: yeah, and I think that um this ethnocentrism and this um um you know holding up uh what is often a very idealized uh understanding uh Um, of U S history and Western European history as the model or the benchmark to compare other societies to. um, I think that that's still very common in, in political science research and still a very big problem in our discipline. Um, And so I think that, uh, um, studies like some of the ones that you mentioned, especially uh, Robert Vitalis's book, uh, White World Order, Black Power Politics, had a huge uh, effect on me because it made me think about all these ways in which um, uh, what we kind of think of as uh, these problems of the past have have had lasting influences on the way on the theories that we produce, on the methods that we use to study politics, like this liber- laboratory, laboratorization phenomenon. Uh, that's a, a hard word to to twist my tongue around, um, um, but that's still you know a very common approach to to uh, studying other societies and uh um i think that uh books like this are really important for for people to read um and i think that uh a big thing that that we need to challenge in the discipline is this idea of scientific progress that we uh sure you know we can look back at all these mistakes that modernization theorists made and uh we can read early things like um, um, Lipset's Economic Development and Democracy article, which uh, had about as much statistical um, reliability as cave drawings. Uh, and yet um, we can, you know, we can look back on that and scoff, but uh, we need to really do some soul searching about how these, um um, the structure, the, the institutional structures that create this need for research that, um, can be used to advance us foreign policy objectives and, uh, to legitimize, uh, us political projects internationally. Um, how these, uh, uh, um, how these, uh, basically the standpoint that a lot of scholars of political science come from socially of being a lot of us are middle-class people. Most of us are white and, uh, how that shapes our, our understanding of the world and our understanding of history and our understanding of our own society. And basically to, to, to make us think more closely about, Maybe you were not so different from the the people that you talk about, the Daniel Learners and and the Dinkor Rostos. I can, you know, I can think of a few political scientists who are the Daniel Learners of our time, but I won't get into that necessarily here. But um, uh, these these uh, big institutional structures and and social standpoint biases are still are still with us in our discipline, and that's why it's important to. Uh, investigate the history of our discipline and to to think about how um, these deep seated biases are are built into our research and into um, the projects that we involve ourselves in um, okay on that note uh. Begum, thank you so much for joining me. This was a a very fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, The book is Hotels and Highways, the Construction of Modernization Theory in Cold War Turkey. Uh, It's from Stanford University Press. It came out in 2018. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, This has been uh, the World Affairs Podcast from the New Books Network. Goodbye. Goodbye.